Welcome to Making Coffee, a behind-the-scenes look at what goes into making one of the world's favorite beverages. I'm your host, Lucia Solis, a former winemaker turned coffee processing specialist. Thanks for joining this week's episode. Welcome to episode 40. Well, actually, this feels a little bit weird. It's been a while since I sat down to record, and I want to tell you guys how much I appreciate your messages and that people sent me some emails. I got some messages on WhatsApp. I got some messages on Patreon that you guys have missed the podcast during this break, and I've missed you guys too. Um, But I have to tell you that I've struggled with trying to find the balance between making coffee and talking about making coffee. When I take an extended break like this one, a big part of the, or a big reason behind something like this is because I felt like I was talking about doing things more than I was doing them. And I started to feel, I don't know, maybe hypocritical is slightly too strong of a sentiment, But I felt like I might have to change the name of the podcast to Talking Coffee instead of Making Coffee. Anyway, here we are at the beginning of January. Uh, Nick and I have completed a year living on the coffee farm in Colombia. We shipped out the biggest yeast-treated batch of coffee that I've ever made to Nikolai from Camera Oscura in Russia. So if you're in that part of the world, you'll be seeing some coffee that I worked on, which is really exciting. And in the time between recording episode 39 and this one, I missed an important milestone that I wanted to celebrate with you guys. This podcast uh, in October (laughs) completed two years. Episode 40 marks the beginning of our third year together. And if you've been with me since the beginning, I want to thank you for sticking around as topics flowed more organically. And if you're new to the podcast, I do hope you'll go back and listen to previous episodes because my goal is that episodes build on each other. If something we talk about today is unclear, it's likely been addressed before in a previous episode. These episodes are not meant to be timely. I hope they cover fundamentals that are timeless. I want this to be like a resource library, and that's why I spend so much time trying to make them dense and very comprehensive so that you can listen to them frequently or maybe, you know, as you are potentially starting your coffee journey or your fermentation journey, This is something that you can, after a year or so, go back and listen to an episode and understand it in a different way because now you have more experience or you have more reference points for certain things that maybe didn't make sense at the time. So if this is your 40th episode with me or your first, thanks for being here. One of the things I'm really proud of is a community we are building on Patreon and Discord. Even though there hasn't been a new podcast episode since October, I've been doing Discord live sessions for Patreon members. I call it digital office hours because it's like my virtual door is open and whoever wants to drop by and ask a question is welcome. I've been doing regular sessions and many producers join to troubleshoot some aspects of their processing. And often in the next session, we get an update on how the harvest is going in India or Honduras or Peru or Mexico. I think these sessions are a lot of fun and they feel less like a webinar where, I don't know, it's... uh, kind of this concentrated information and much more of a hangout where you get to have the context, like that global context of maybe weather conditions in certain parts of the world. Or one of my favorite parts is when the the people that are joining, when you guys ask each other questions and ask each other how you've solved it in your part of the world or how you're handling some situation. Um, I think it's a really valuable resource. And, you know, we get to talk about equipment, we get to have certain recommendations 
And there's been a couple of opportunities where we get to have roaster producer kind of interactions and roaster producer um, exchanges on particular processing types or maybe some difficulty roasting a particular process. So it's a really friendly atmosphere. And I hope that if you're at all curious, you'll join one of the sessions. Or if you are a Patreon member, you can watch videos. We record each session so that you can you know, go back and listen to it or for any of the people that can't make it live because we do have people from many, many different time zones and I can't always uh, accommodate. So those recordings are there of previous sessions and then all of the future sessions that we do are going to be recorded and they'll be posted on there as well. And staying on the theme of how infrequently I record, um, but for those of you who are looking for more thoughtful coffee conversations, I hope that you check out the podcast by Momo Tostadores. The hosts Alejandro and Ariel have great chemistry. They recently did an episode about cometeer that I found entertaining, but an important conversation that I think we should be having in coffee. For those of you who haven't heard of the coffee, cometeer is a new type of instant coffee. However, instead of traditional powder, it's like a frozen puck of coffee concentrate. I was able to try Cometeer last year. The company generously shipped me a whole box to Cleveland, and I tried five different coffees. I think each box had eight or ten pods in it, so overall I ended up having about 40 or 50 cups of that coffee during my entire experience. In fact, I even recorded a potential podcast episode with Alex Kaplan, an employee of Cometeer. This was over a year ago, maybe more like a year and a half, while the company was still operating pretty quietly. So we saved the recording to be released at some later date when they felt more ready to share. The coffee comes in a small package, but it really rattled me. I was glad when Cometeer asked to delay the releasing of the episode because those little frozen pucks just, I don't know, they awakened, they like stirred up some very strong feelings for me that even now when I make myself think about it, all I find is a swirling puddle of uncertainty. So, when I heard Alejandro and Ariel talking about their strong reaction to David Chang's strong reaction, David Chang is the chef of Momofuku. All of that just stirred up all of those dormant feelings again. I think that Cometeer is a remarkable product, but I think it's kind of awkward. I think its placing right now is very awkward, and I don't know what to do with it. I find it really difficult to separate the thing itself from the marketing around it or the way that it's being talked about and the way that it's being used. I think the thing itself is quite brilliant, but the way that it's delivered, I'm, I'm just lost. I'm really uneasy about it. I even considered trying to, you know, gather my thoughts and think about the subject for a, a podcast episode, not the original recording with Alex Kaplan, but maybe a little bit something more examining the, the polarizing elements of this, this type of coffee. But I'm not sure it really merits an entire episode. I think something like that would be much better served in one of the Discord chats where I get to hear from you guys. So if you guys have tried this coffee, if there's, I don't know, anything that you want to say about it, I'm, I'm really curious to hear more people's experience with this coffee. Because um, like I said, when I thought about doing an episode, it was just very, it was very ranty and not very appropriate for the tone of the general tone of this podcast. So if you're lucky enough to understand Spanish, check out the Momotos Laros podcast and listen to two coffee professionals share their feelings on what I think is an important and controversial new coffee product. All right, that's enough of that. Let's move on to the point of today's episode, which is a listener Q&A. As many of you know, I like to make these episodes um, centered around things that I find important or that I've maybe 
are a little bit confusing or things that basically I want to share. And if there's nothing that I feel is really important to share, then as you know, we can have many months without a, without a podcast episode. But what I realize is that I do get a lot of questions um, from you guys of, of things that don't quite make sense. And what I've tried to do is kind of corral those questions into particular themes or topics. But again, that has delays and can take a lot of time. So in addition to doing more of the digital office hours to have these like kind of one-off um, opportunities to answer very specific questions, I decided to make this episode just random questions. And by random, I mean that they're not grouped into particular themes or categories. These are just kind of ad hoc questions that I've received um, over the last couple of weeks or months. So let's get started. All right. Our first question is from Thomas. He says, I firstly just want to say how incredibly informative and helpful your podcast is. Hearing a perspective about the coffee industry from someone whose background isn't in coffee and also whose background is scientific really puts a clear and unbiased opinion on really important matters, and I can't thank you enough for sharing. I'm a coffee roaster at Leftfield Coffee Roasters, and I've got a question on sugar content and green coffee versus water evaporation. You were saying in episode 30 that sugars are hygroscopic and move where the water goes. If water evaporates over time as green beans are kept and the cell structure of the bean becomes more brittle, does that mean that sugar evaporates too? I was under the impression sugars are preservative and don't evaporate. I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Cheers, Thomas. This is an interesting question because there's a little bit of confusion and we're kind of conflating some concepts. So yes, sugar can be a preservative, but sugar is not automatically a preservative. It's only preservative when it's found in very high concentrations. For example, something like honey. Honey, as we know, it can be self-stable for a very, very long time. It has a ton of sugar and it doesn't need to be you know, refrigerated or, you know, kept in any particular, um, in, in any particular fashion, you can just have it on your counter for a very long time. And it's because that very high sugar concentration instead of being fuel. So when something has residual sugar, so for example, in wine, uh, it's very important for the wines to be dry. And by dry, we mean a very, very low almost uh, as little sugar as possible because small amounts of sugar, you know, anything above one and a half or two grams per liter can be food, can be fuel for any microbes that are there. And it really challenges stability. So in one way, leftover sugar is a challenge for long-term stability and it can invite um, microbes to, to change the product. But then if we move all the way to the other spectrum where you have really high concentration of sugar, lots and lots of sugar, well, that type of environment is toxic to microbes. So in something like honey, or maybe like a jam where there's so much sugar, you can just leave it sitting on the counter and it's not going to change and it's not going to go off. So part of it is thinking about where on the spectrum you are with the sugar. So I think that perhaps maybe what Thomas was thinking is that if there is sugar available in the seed, that that sugar would act as a preservative. But in the really small concentrations that we find in coffee, it's much more likely that the sugar is a fuel source to further change and transform the coffee and have other biochemical reactions um, happening. And, and at this point, we're talking about green coffee before it's been roasted. So just to give you an example of some of the levels, so like I was saying, we want 
um, wine to be stable. Something as little as 0.2 bricks can be an issue in terms of residual sugar changing the, the final product. But honey on the opposite end is like 70 bricks. So you need that high of a concentration to get that preservative effect, that antimicrobial effect, that toxic effect from sugar. I think another thing I want to address here, going back to the question, he says that if water evaporates over time as green beans are kept and the cell structure of the bean becomes more brittle, does that mean that the sugar evaporates too? So let's break this down a little bit as well. So it's not that water is constantly evaporating. So during the drying process, like after we've washed the coffee and the coffee is is drying and still in that, that green state, um, as long as it's drying, yes, water is leaving the seed. It's it's going from inside of the seed toward out into the environment. So it's it's going out up until a certain point until it can reach you know a an equilibrium with with the atmosphere. So if you have, as we do in many Latin countries, a very wet atmosphere and it's raining and you have ninety percent humidity um, for most of the harvest, it can be very difficult to dry that seed. But what I don't want you to think about is that the seed is forever being dried, <laughs> meaning that that it is constantly losing um, losing that moisture because in the beginning drying stages, the water that's available is free. It's, it's unbound, so it comes off easier. And as the coffee is drying, the water becomes less and less free. All of the free water is taken up and then you have more bound water. And that's when we get into these questions about water activity, where you have water that is present, but it's not necessarily available. Something else needs to change. So you can have bound water or unbound water. This means that in the beginning stages, water is coming out of the seed much more easily. And as you get to the drier levels, as you get you know, below 20% uh, moisture content you get down to 15 and you get as you get lower and lower that water it becomes a lot harder to pull out of the seed that water um, does not want to let go it is bound more tightly and that's why it can be really difficult to get coffee down to that stability so that's one thing to think about like the water that's in the seed doesn't want to come out so it's not like it's constantly evaporating all of the time so keep that in mind Another thing that Thomas mentioned in his question was about the the seed, the structure of the coffee seed becoming more brittle as you have this water moving out of it. And I, something that can kind of help visualize this is the energy that one uses to remove this water from the seed, meaning um, how quickly or how hot, how much energy you're putting into the system to remove this water can really impact the cellular structure. So think about using a hair dryer to dry your hair. Something like a hair dryer that has a lot of heat, that has a lot of energy, which you're applying to your wet hair, which is the structure of protein. When you have really high heat, you can start to um, heat up and expand and maybe even you know microboil the water inside of your hair, and then you're breaking those structures and you can cause a lot of damage to your hair doing something like that. So to recap, some of the things that are getting a little bit confused is talking about sugar and the the sugar like the glucose and the fructose, like the simple sugars that are in the mucilage that are on the outside of the seed, that it is a layer between the seed and the skin, that that's the type of sugar that we really talk about when we talk about fermentations, extended fermentations, inoculations, yeast, things like that. There is also sugar, carbohydrates inside of the seed. 
and obviously the the seed needs to have some food for the for the embryo for seed development so there's also some carbohydrate sugars inside of the seed to feed the embryo for you know the eventual sprouting of that seed to become a plant but even though we use the same word we use the word sugar these are two very different sugars and we shouldn't think about them in the same way again the mucilage can have very high concentrations of sugar we can get 10 14 15 bricks on the outside and um you know inside i'm not sure off the top of my head but we're talking very small amounts and they're, they're mostly again this like molecules that get transformed we're not really it's not a measurable sugar in that sense um and the other concept that's getting a little bit muddled is this this concept of water and water leaving the the seed and how in the very beginning when the coffee seed is you know i don't know 45 40 35% moisture content that water is leaving the seed much more readily it's much easier it takes less energy to get that water to be removed from the system than when we're talking about really low concentrations when we're going towards the end of that drying stage at around the 15 11 percent moisture content that water is very tightly bound and that water does not want to leave the system so you shouldn't be concerned or thinking that it's just going to like evaporate on its own usually you do have to apply you know some some more energy at that phase okay our next question comes from jean in thailand jean asks i am still not so sure about the difference with using or not using the cascara in wine, I believe the skin contact was used for tannin extraction and phenolic. Question. Um, but in coffee, I am not so sure if we want either due to astringency being a negative trait. So this is a great question. Um, I, I get this question a lot about, usually with yeast, like what, when should you add yeast? Should you do it to pulped coffee or to um, cherries? I think that this is a matter of preference. It's a matter of convenience. My personal preference is to get the cascara out of the way as soon as possible. And so I find it really interesting when coffee, this, this method of pulping coffee, separating the parchment, the, the mucilage from the cascara, and then choosing to put the cascara back into the tank. I don't think the origins of this method can be found in coffee. I think that this is something borrowed from the wine industry and something that is not particularly relevant. I, I very much don't like this method for, for the, the reasons that Jean mentioned already, in that the reason why this is done in, in wine is because the skin is where you have the tannins and the anthocyanins and all of the phenolic compounds so that your wine can get color, so that your wine can get um, some structure. But none of those things are relevant in coffee. We don't need the cascara in coffee cherries to make our coffee more colorful. That comes, the color comes in the roasting process. Um, and in that sense, we, we've also known that there are some defects, some issues with um, phenolic taint. And so for me, I, I can't say definitively that phenolic taint would come from cascara. I'm just saying that that is the highest concentration of phenolic compounds of the, the coffee. So... I just don't understand the reasoning behind wanting to add even more phenolic compounds to your coffee fermentation that could potentially um, penetrate and be absorbed into the seed and cause a problem later. I'm often trying to think about why anyone would do this. And one, I think it may be from not understanding what, why it's done in wine and how irrelevant it is in coffee. But I think another reason 
that this potentially could be useful if it's like maybe 10% useful is the skin is where you have the highest concentration of your local microbes. So if you're having trouble starting a fermentation, um, if you, I talked about this a little bit in a previous episode about making uh, coffee, for, having coffee fermentations in California, where it was such a new origin that the fermentations were very slow. They're very sluggish because there wasn't the adequate kind of local microbes to get that started compared to a lot more of the tropical areas where coffee fermentations have been happening for a lot longer or they're a little bit warmer. There's a bit more biodiversity. Um, so if you are in a totally pioneer new coffee origin and you're having trouble getting your fermentations to start, then doing something like this where you pulp your coffee, you save the cascara, and then you add it back into the fermentation that's a way to inoculate. That's a way to dose your coffee fermentation with the local microbes. So that being said, like that one particular use case um, makes it to me very incompatible with doing an, any other kind of inoculation, like a yeast, or maybe if you're trying to do like a lactic, um, something like that, where you're, where you're trying to control the population. If you're adding the cascada back in, you're just adding back all of the competition that you're trying to avoid. Um, and I think the biggest reason why this method, um, why I find this method difficult is because when I'm working with coffee producers, my biggest concern is consistency and scalability. So when you're adding all of these local microbes back in, it's this huge unknown. You don't know what you're adding back in. And every time you could be adding something different. So I'm not saying that it's going to be bad, but just that it's, you're making things more inconsistent and that may not be your goal. Usually it's very, very few people's goal to make coffee inconsistent. Um, but it could be if you're trying to go for something wild and different every time. It's possible. Uh, but the, the real reason for me is scalability. This is a very difficult system to scale up to much larger quantities. So separating, separating these two elements back out, meaning the parchment from the cascara, like you've already gone through the trouble once. You've already gone through the expense of this this step, this pulping step, which separates the parchment from the cascara, and then you have to put them back together to do, you know, whatever fermentation you're deciding to do. And then after that, you need to separate these two products again. So you're doubling your work. And I think the second time, because there isn't a specific machine to do this, meaning we know that a pulper exists to remove the cascara from the parchment, but if you then put it back and then you need to separate it again, there isn't a specific machine to do that. So it's either going to be very intensive doing it by hand, um, trying to do some floats. It could probably require a lot of water where you're constantly submerging your fermentation and then having to like skim off the, the, the skin that, that floats to the top. So again, you could be working against yourself by creating some interesting flavors in your fermentation, but then in the process of how you separate them using a lot of water and then ending up diluting some of those flavors in the seeds. So for me, this seems like it sounds fun. It has really cool pictures. It sounds fancy. But at the end of the day, I think you're just making more work for yourself with a very, very high investment and potentially very little return. So I'm not an advocate of adding cascara to the fermentation. I think it's one of those things that's kind of easy and, and one of the first things that many new producers uh, that are going into the specialty market try. But I really caution against it. 
Another thing that just occurred to me that that you might want to try if, say, you're trying to, um, you are trying to complicate the process, meaning you are trying to find more ways to add value or to change the flavors. If you're looking for some ways to kind of amp up your role in coffee processing um, and, and you're dead set on doing something with the cascara, then I think a, an easier method from a production point of view would be to pulp the coffee take the cascara and steep it and make like a tea. And if there's any particular flavors or some attribute that the cascara could be contributing to the fermentation, do it that way. Do it separately. Steep it, collect that juice, make like a syrup, make like a concentrate, and then add that liquid to your coffee parchment instead of adding all of the solid cascara that then gives you that nightmare of having to separate again. So that could be a method of, of uh, or a, a strategy for getting the essence, the contribution of the cascara, but not having that, the mechanical problem of re-separating them out again. Okay, there's a little bit more to Gene's question. He said, I've also been experimenting with bigger tanks. I didn't know we were using the same one until I saw your Patreon videos. I noticed that you cut open the top part of the tank to make the workflow easier. For me, I am scared of the acetobacter working. He says, we have a really hot climate here in Thailand. So I still ferment with the lids and an airlock. Do you think I could cut open the tank lids like you and still get similar results as a lid closed? So um, this is another kind of fun thing that I've started to do on, on Patreon and on the Discord. In addition to the digital office hours, there is a channel on Discord called Producer to Producer where I mean, it's a forum. So, you know, people have their comments, they ask questions, there's discussions, but we can also upload videos. So I've uploaded videos of, you know, very short 15, 20 second videos of my equipment, what I use here in the mill in Colombia, and have encouraged other producers to upload their process. And so you get to see these little clips of how people are processing coffee all over, all over the world. And in one of them, I showed the tanks that I use and like I said, the pulpers and, and some of the things that we have here in the Beneficio. So what Jean is talking about is one of my favorite tanks to use is these like water tanks in Colombia. They call them dados, like dice, because they, they look like cubes and they have, uh, it's a plastic inner lining. I think they're usually used for water. Uh, so it's a plastic structure and then a metal cage around it and you can lift it up with um, a forklift or you know something like that they're pretty large they're a thousand liters and i like to process between 650 maybe 750 kilos of pulped cherry in these tanks and they have a very small opening in the top because they're meant for for liquids so to use them for coffee what i do is i just completely cut open the top so it's just like a box and I do my fermentations that way. So in a way, these tanks are kind of a modified traditional fermentation tank. So a traditional coffee fermentation tank is a like a swimming pool. They're usually pretty large and shallow so, and kind of open top, open to the environment. So in a way, these tanks that I use are a modified version of that because the top is open. I don't have a closed lid. I don't like to work with... Um, lids or airlocks or anything like that. I find them kind of cumbersome. And I have never had a problem with acetobacter taking over my fermentation, but I don't always work in climates that are 
as hot as Thailand, and I've never worked in Thailand. So it could be that there's something in the environment there that they just have a higher concentration of Acetobacter for other reasons. So contamination is a lot more likely. However, if if that's not the case, like just considering maybe normal circumstances and just that that hot temperature, then yes, that would encourage Acetobacter to have an open top and to have those warm conditions. Um, So what I recommend or the way that I do my fermentations is I do them submerged. So even though they're underwater and there is some dissolved oxygen in the water, it's a very low amount of dissolved oxygen. So they can be considered a, a very anaerobic environment or an anoxic environment where there's very low oxygen. And then what I do is I take a piece of plastic and I put it over the surface of the coffee. So it's not like a strict lid that's on top of the coffee, but it is a covered surface so that I don't have kind of that um, exposure to oxygen that would encourage acetobacter. And that's it. I'm, I think, you know, I'm, I'm pretty chill about my fermentations. I don't, I don't feel like you have to create the exact perfect anaerobic environment to completely eliminate acetobacter. I think that you can get, you know, 90% of the way there. And Again, because these fermentations are not that long, there's not that much time for any potential, you know, two to five percent of acetobacter that may be present to really grow and to take over your fermentation and to change the flavor that you're looking for. So my advice to Gene is to open up the top of his tanks because he's already using the same ones and to make life a little bit easier. It makes it a lot easier to get the coffee in and out of the tank and like I'm saying, you you know, back off a little bit on your strictness of making the most perfect um, anaerobic environment, and I think he'll be okay. Okay, moving on to the next question. Um, this is an anonymous question that I'm going to try to answer a little bit more quickly because I've only answered two questions and it's like half an hour in. Um, okay, so this one asks, how do you control the fermentation period when the environment is hot and when it is cold? I think this is a really good question because as we know, most mills are kind of out open to the environment and they can be, the temperature swings can be pretty dramatic from, you know, day to day or from the beginning of the harvest season to the peak uh, or potentially to the end. So there's a lot of temperature inconsistencies. So, you know, before we do too much on, when I work with my clients, before we do too much on like getting temperature controlled tanks with like jackets and glycol systems or, you know, heading in that really specific direction, one of the easiest things or one of kind of the the more obvious things that we can do to control the temperature is try to create the fermentation space uh, that is inside. So, you know, walls, like I'm I'm a bigger fan of putting walls on your beneficio instead of buying new tanks. Something like that where you can start to isolate the fermentation environment before you um, invest in, in new tanks or a heating system or a cooling system. So whenever possible, add some walls, big fan of walls, uh, walls, roof, things like that. After we pass that stage and we're looking at the fermentation, uh, if you're in a very, very hot environment and your fermentations are progressing too quickly, a really good method to slow them down is to just add water. If you have water available. Water is, it takes a lot of energy to change the temperature of water. So if you have just a submerged fermentation, that's going to maintain its temperature a lot more stable um, long-term. So you don't have to get 
a cooling system or an insulated tank, just submerging your coffee fermentations in water will really stabilize that temperature fluctuation. And then conversely, let's say you have a really cold environment and you have trouble with, you have very sluggish fermentations and you have trouble, you know, getting them started. Um, in some of these kind of cold mountain areas in Latin America, we have that situation. And because washed coffees are very popular, all that wetness, all that moisture uh, slows down an, an already slow process. So in those situations, switching your fermentation to a dry, a dry process, <laughs> a dry fermentation of a wet process, meaning you pulp the coffee and then you don't add any additional water. You try to have that um, you know, very low moisture type of fermentation because that low moisture will allow the microbes to get a little bit more activity. That warmth can accelerate the reaction that, that may be happening. And again, this is a very inexpensive way to, to try and, and manage your temperatures. All right, here's another anonymous question. How can small-scale producers ferment their coffee without having to buy commercial yeast that can be very expensive? We covered this already a little bit in the previous answer where the cascara, the coffee skins, are the biggest source of local microbes. So if you're trying to take advantage of what's around you and, you know, kind of boost your fermentation that way without having to buy anything and, and have that added cost, then the cherry skins are a really good option. Um, another way is, you know, batch to batch. If you have your, your first coffee fermentation and the liquid that you save from that still has good flavor and it still has good um, aroma, then you can save some of the liquid from that fermentation or as much as possible and add it to the next batch. And so you are inoculating kind of with your house strain, with your house microbes and trying to get a little bit more consistency that way. This method is not foolproof because the longer that you have a fermentation going, the more it will change and you know, not necessarily for the worse, it could change for the better, but it is changing. So a lot of that consistency that you may expect um, as the season goes on will will be variable. But again, it's, it's in an expensive way. It's using what you already have at your disposal. Okay, next question. How do you choose the fermentation for a certain coffee? So I'm not sure if this question is asking me how do I choose or asking on behalf of a producer how would they choose. Um, but the answer is, you know, it's pretty similar. You know, I'm not looking to design certain flavors. I'm not looking to kind of bring out anything of the coffee. I work for my clients. And so for the most part, I'm just trying to solve their problem. So first I listen to what the issues may be. And perhaps maybe they've gotten some feedback from a buyer that their coffee was lacking something, or maybe they don't necessarily have negative feedback, but they are having trouble maybe with consistency even though they've had really good results, or maybe it's like a problem in production where they're having trouble scaling up or something like that. So I listen to what some of the issues are, and then I try to reverse engineer a fermentation to address those problems. So I first look at the, uh, the resources that are in a particular place. So I look at, you know, how much access to water do they have? What is the drying condition? Do they have a lot of sun? Do they not have a lot of sun? Do we need to use machine drying? I look at the number of tanks that are available. I look at the equipment. Um, and another thing that's really important that factors into my designs is uh, people, labor. How 
do they have a consistent workforce or is it a very variable workforce that sometimes shows up, sometimes doesn't, you know, maybe more of seasonal labor or do they have somebody that's consistently there all of the time? All of these things kind of influence my uh, my fermentation design because even though it seems like a small thing, the the fermentation can provide like a buffer for some of these issues. For example, if a coffee has a very intense, strong, hot fermentation, but the workforce is kind of unstable, uh, a little more unpredictable, you don't know how many people are going to show up to work on a given week, then that makes the fermentation very delicate, meaning you could miss some of these windows and have a lot of inconsistency in, in your final cup quality. So in that case, I look for a way to extend the fermentation, not in a way that changes the flavor, but just provides more of a buffer. So we've had some times where, you know, if you're looking to hit a particular target, you want a, a 36-hour fermentation, but maybe that 36 hours is at 6 in the morning and the coffee is not necessarily, you know, people aren't ready to wash the coffee. Maybe they don't get there until afternoon or they have other business to do. Then you're getting outside of that window of of uh, fermentation that you want, but there's very little that you can do about it. So if we can, with different practices, maybe with submerging, maybe with inoculation, uh, playing with temperature control, we can extend that window to be, let's say, 50 hours. If something happens where the workforce isn't available, you're not compromising the quality of your coffee. So a lot of my designs are... Based, those are the kinds of things that I think about. Sorry, that's just an example that <laughs> that occurred to me for what would make me change a particular design. So flavor, honestly, is usually one of the one of the last things that I think about because I, I think there are there are bigger problems that are harder to solve than trying to get a particular flavor in a cup. So most of my designs center around what resources are available. Um, what issues are there and how can we mitigate and create more of a robust process so that it's not so delicate so that you don't have to catch it at exactly 37.2 hours or at exactly 3.2 pH or, you know, anything like that. That's how I design. That's what I would encourage um, coffee producers to begin to think about. What do they have an abundance of? For example, here in, in Colombia, we have a ton of water there it's just it rains all of the time uh, so we have that challenge in terms of drying but we also have many natural springs there's there's not a lack of water and not that we should be wasteful but in a place like this even though uh like a natural or a honey are very popular flavor profiles it's a very uphill battle to try and do those processes here so in a, in a place like this, sticking with a washed coffee with a traditional lavado process is the most convenient for the resources that are available. And it's kind of the most like um, easier for mental health, like just trying to not fight nature all of the time. Um, but washed coffees aren't the answer everywhere because in many places in the world, water is scarce and we should be looking for ways to reduce our water consumption. So, you know, those are some things to keep in mind. Um, so I guess all of this to say is how I approach my fermentation design and how I would recommend coffee producers start approaching their fermentation designs are by stepping back and looking at the environment, letting the location dictate what that fermentation should look like. 
And, you know, that's not anything new. That's, that's how coffee was processed. Where there was a lot of water, it did wash process. Where there's not as much water, it's the natural dry process. So, you know, I think taking some cues from that tradition are really important. And to not get so caught up in innovation and things that sound cool that we forget that we still have to put these in the context of the countries that they're in and the resources that are available in those countries. Okay, I think that's where I'm going to leave it for today. Um, this was a little bit of a different style. Usually the episodes are a lot more um, themed and this was much more kind of on the fly answering questions, trying to get through as many as I could. But um, I may try to do more of these episodes and hopefully see you guys on Discord. And here we are at the end of another episode. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Thanks to the patrons who make the show possible. And thanks to my editor, Nick, for removing all of the dog barking and the farm noise. Did you like this episode? If so, join us for more on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. It's kind of like having a cup of coffee with me. Patreon is where I can interact with listeners, get your feedback and suggestions for future episodes, and also have little extras. And if you can't join Patreon just yet, I would love it if you could share this episode with a friend. Lastly, check the show notes for resources, and remember, life's too short to drink bad coffee.